This is Talk is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Come along as we take conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. Friday afternoon, 5.24 p.m. What are we doing? We should be uh, on our second cocktail. But Who says I'm not? It may, <laughs> yeah, it may say Gatorade on the bottle, but that don't mean squat, buddy. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, yeah, very cool today. Uh, we, Mike Morris, uh, great guy, um, politician, uh, hunter, uh, advocate for sustainability, uh, he does oh, it all. Uh, yo, really, really good guy. Former president of the BC Trappers Association has a trap line up here that I get to uh, to do some work on. And just an all around great guy. Just a great guy. I always love chatting with him. Yeah, for sure. So Mike Morris is the BC Liberal uh, MLA out of Prince George. Prince George. What Prince George McKenzie is his riding. George McKenzie. Okay, yeah, for sure. So, uh, yeah. So. Uh, a number of BC Liberals came down. We invited all MLAs. Every single one got a official invite to the legislature for our Act Now campaign for the Absolutely, Wednesday presentation at noon. And we had, was it six Liberals show up and uh, in support? Five or six. Yeah, it was yeah. five. I think you're right. Yeah. And uh, so it was great to see. Um, you know, it would have been nice for the other parties to show, but uh, we realized this is an emotive issue. But it was nice to see there was support there. And, uh, you know, we, 20,000 letters. So I, I, first of all, Steve, uh, hats off to you. you. You did a ton of the heavy lifting on this. Uh, Greg Rensmeg is our vice chair for our government engagement committee. Um, and, and you did a lot of the heavy list lifting uh, yourself and Matt Jones uh, as well was supporting you with that. And just the campaign did really well. Uh, 20,000 physical letters went to the premier's office on Wednesday afternoon. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was 20,000 in boxes. So that, that's phenomenal when you think about it. And 50,000 total virtually. So we, we sent 50,000 virtual letters through our, uh, and then physically 20,000 unique individuals sent letters to the legislature. Um, and that was great support too. BC Wildlife Federation was part of this. Uh, there was a number of fish and game organizations, North Peace Rod and Gun Club, a number of orgs uh, helped out too. So mm-hmm. it was, uh, you know, a great collaborative effort from hunters all across the province, conservationists all across the province, outside the borders, Scientists signed this, uh, members of the First Nations community, there was a ton of support all the way across, and it was really impactful to see that Act Now campaign come off. So hats off to you, man. Nicely done. Hey, hey it was a, a team effort, right? It's, uh, it's, it, it was impressive, as you said, to see physically just what sort of an impact it had, right? You can, you can like and share on Facebook cool but when you actually see them laid out it's like wow as uh was it renee merrifield from uh uh, Kelowna said 
that it was when she walked up to the legislature just how impressed she was with the the physical presence that was there like if if it was uh pre-covid or after covid we would have had quite a bit more uh hunters conservationists showing up in person but due to the uh the the orders we we couldn't make this a big public event but i I do still think the message got across right uh as you said we did personally invite every single mla and cabinet minister to show up they each got a, a personalized email inviting them with date time place reason to show up because we we didn't want to make it a partisan issue, right? Because it's not a government issue; it's a wildlife and habitat issue. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I think it was pretty pretty obvious uh, where things lay with who showed up. So, yeah, that's a conversation for another podcast. But uh, I, I, I do I I do think we were uh, we were well represented. Yeah, absolutely. You know, what was interesting for me is when we delivered the letters. It was impressive. There was boxes over boxes and. And guys were like, really? Is there 20,000 letters there? I'm like, well, look at them. And, and it was clearly there. It was obvious there was. But then we took it around. We had, we did the presentation in front of the steps of the legislature, but then we had to bring them around to the mailroom. So it had to go into the mailroom. It had to be all scanned, of course, for security concerns. And then they were delivered to the premier's office. And the interesting thing was is when we showed up with 20,000 letters, um, the head of the mailroom came out and he was like, oh, my goodness. His reaction that was the most um, amazing part for me because he could tell that he was blown away by how many letters were there. Um, and he was like, you know, he goes, yeah, all these are going to be sitting in the premier's office this afternoon. And I was just like, fantastic. You know, that that makes a statement. It definitely makes a statement. Absolutely. When the head of the mailroom is saying, holy, that tells you that there's been very rarely is a presence like that made physically. And that's why it's so important to sign and deliver a physical letter to your elected officials because everybody can sign one online, but when they're actually printed, they make an impact, a physical impact. Yeah, well said. Okay, so just a couple of housekeeping things. Uh, Things are on the tick up here with COVID, so looking like some positivities. Um, We've made a conscious decision to run the Jurassic Classic this summer. Uh, It's the third week of August. Um, obviously, we're going to be completely COVID compliant. All our guests are are welcome as long as they play the game with the COVID rules, do all the stuff. We've got a COVID safety plan. Um, so we're really excited. This is kind of our first in-person fundraiser that we're able to have. As you know, Jurassic's a smaller event anyway. We only have 54 participants. Um, so it's it's going to be awesome, and we're really, really stoked about it. And, um, you know, it's funny. We reached out to our, our funding partners and donors, and they're just super stoked and really keen to support. We've, you know, we're seeing more support now than we ever have, and I think it's just people are relieved that there's a something moving forward that's positive, right? So Yeah, there, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be a good time. Absolutely. Can't wait to hook in some of those big dinos. Yeah, absolutely for sure and and uh put some money on the uh on the ground for wild sheep and and wildlife in bc right so put some bait into the river and some sheep on the mountain and it's a good time hey yeah absolutely yeah. so uh we just ran a raffle so it was the holy ultimate crap. base camp raffle uh, holy crap yeah yeah like, wow <laughs> I don't know if it was your marketing or the package was that good. I'm not sure which one it was, but uh, anyway. uh, I'm going to say it's a bit of both. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we had our ultimate base camp raffle. We actually had it set up for Kamloops, but uh, obviously, you know, the show didn't go forward. So we held on to it, ran that raffle. 
we dropped it yesterday at nine o'clock a.m. and we capped it today at four p.m. because we were sold out. Uh, Twenty thousand dollars worth of tickets just flew off the shelf. So, and for those that are going to ask, no, we cannot draw any earlier. That's not because of us. That's because of the gaming laws that we signed on to when this uh, was set up. So, unfortunately, no. But as Kyle said, was it? Was it the package that was so appealing? What would you guys love to see in a raffle package from us? Like, fire us an email, communications at wildchiefsociety.com, and say, hey, I want to see uh, a tar hunt or a chamois hunt, or I would love to see uh, a, a trailer or a boat or something like that. Let us know. Uh, this is all about you guys as well. We want to appeal to you as well. What do you want to see? Absolutely. And we do listen to our, our members and our supporters. You know, uh, a lot of the times what we do listen to is how things sell. When we see something do well, mm -hmm. we're like, okay, that works. If it doesn't do as well, then we're like, well, okay, maybe we won't do that again. But let us know. Um, we're keen to, to offer things that people want. Um, I can say, due to gaming rules, we can't say what we're going to uh, offer next for raffle stuff. Mm -hmm. But we have a couple of really cool raffles coming up. Um, so keep an eye out. You're going to see them pretty soon and uh, coming down the pipe. So with that, let's go to episode 32. Uh, we're going to welcome uh, BC Liberal MLA Mike Morris from Prince George McKenzie to the show. Steve, uh, looking forward to this one. It's going to be a great chat. Absolutely. If you looked up the words conservation superhero in the dictionary, you would see a picture of our friend Omer from Precision Optics, a tireless donor and supporter of all things wild sheep. Precision Optics, located in Quinell, British Columbia, truly stands alone in the high alpine. From optics to rifles to outdoor gear and a knowledge that cannot be surpassed, toss in that killer smile and you have a total conservation package. Precision Optics, we are truly thankful for the support you show us every step of the way. Find them online at precisionoptics.net or in Aroma Foods, located just off Highway 97 in Quinell, B. Uh, good afternoon, Mike. Uh, welcome to the uh, Talk is Cheap podcast. A real pleasure to have you on, and thanks for taking the time to meet with us this afternoon. No, my pleasure. This is a good topic to discuss. Excellent, Mike. Yeah, we appreciate uh, you know really uh, what you've done for hunter hunters across uh, British Columbia. Uh, you know, your involvement in Victoria is, uh, you know, you've been very active down there, very vocal on uh, issues around sustainability, conservation-related issues, and, uh, you know, opportunities for us as hunters as well. Um, so it's something that, uh, you know, I, I really watch closely what you're doing in the legislature. We're really grateful for what you've done. Uh, the Wild Sheep Society of BC, we had this opportunity to present 20,000 letters to the Premier on, uh, on the 9th, on Wednesday. And uh, true to form, you showed up to uh, speak in support of, of what we're doing. Um, it always seems very consistent with yourself and also the BC Liberal Party, the support we're getting as hunters across the landscape here and being out uh, out there to support us all the time. So, Yeah, it was a pleasure seeing you guys there. And, uh, you know, an impressive load of boxes that showed up in front of the legislature. And uh, it's too bad um, it was, you know, we had to do it during COVID times. We've been COVID times now for a year and a half. Uh, hopefully it'll be over one of these days soon but i think the message was important that uh, that it be delivered in the way that it was and and uh, i've got a meeting with the minister coming up towards the end of the month here so i might uh, chit chat with her a little bit about this issue as well yeah so let's i guess maybe jump into that issue you know a little bit uh, and i know mike you're very active uh 
you know, around conservation related issues, forestry related issues, all, all these different things. But, you know, we haven't really talked about the issue at hand with some management. It's, you know, something that has been a huge concern for us. And we've actually got a little bit of flack as the Wild Sheep Society BC for kind of making a stand and a statement around, uh, you know, that we want to hold the government to account on this, uh, this issue around wildlife using science because we did see it back in 2017 when uh, the grizzly bear just over overnight went away you know one of the most heavily um, studied animals uh, in the province there's uh, a lot of time money and effort understanding them and uh, the government shuts it down you know kind of on election promise so you know I guess maybe it'd be great to hear from you on your perspective and your thoughts on science-based wildlife management and kind of this uh, this issue we're having to deal with about uh, social license and and you know maybe hunters shouldn't be harvesting, taking off the landscape, not based on sustainability, but based on, uh, you know, because somebody doesn't like that an animal dies in the process. So, you know, if you could talk to a little bit to that for us, you'd appreciate it. Yeah. You know, um, wildlife has been undervalued in this province uh, um, right from the beginning, you know, and when forestry came along, we adopted that sustainable yield strategy way back in 1945 with a sole focus on, on wood and nothing else. And I, I think that is that that began the demise of our wildlife populations in BC. And because of that focus as well, I don't think any government since 1945 has put the required amount of money into wildlife management or into managing any of the other biodiversity values on the land, uh, which has led us to where we are today. We have no idea that, you know, there's, we haven't had a good wildlife inventory program. We haven't had a good wildlife, you know, if, if you talk to anybody, um, they wouldn't be able to tell you how many moose we got, how many marten we have, how many of any kind of a critter that we have in the province here. And I think that's wrong when you look at the value that each one of those animals provide to society and, and, and to the environment itself. You know, I, I read back when I was trapping and, and one of these days, maybe I'll be back doing that again and hunting. But I've got every study on fur bears that has been written in the last 50 or 60 years. And all of them say the same. You know, uh, just the bibli bibliography I've got on Martin, for an example, is 12 pages long. And uh, every single uh, um, report and paper that was written on biology and the habitat for uh, Martin also the same thing, that their decline is premised upon the lack of habitat. That as soon as you log the mature timber, um, that takes away nesting and denning sites and, and food opportunities and the redback bowl and those kinds of things. But yet we continue to do that, you know? And then you look at, at the caribou situation and just about every report that you see on caribou talks about the loss of habitat. And what are we doing? We're still cutting the trees down and still destroying the habitat uh, that these animals are in. So we haven't learned. And part of it is because we have this, like I said, this incomplete strategy from 1945 that uh, has morphed into an ideology that is taught in our forestry programs at the university level, at the college level. So these, these folks that are now in forestry and senior management positions, all they know is how to grow and cut down a tree and how to make it grow faster and the optimum size to put it through a sawmill, um, even though that the optimum size is still half the size that's needed to produce an adequate canopy overhead and, and whatnot. So um, to change the mindset of, of colleagues and to change the mindset of people 
in the industry has been an enormous task. Uh, you know, some days I feel like I'm just banging my head against a brick wall. But I, I do think, you know, if I look at the numbers in my own caucus, I think I'm I'm, I'm probably 50-50 now, where right at the beginning, I was probably one against everybody. So it, it is working, but it's a long, painful process. And it's it's organizations like Wild Sheep Society and others that have made enough noise on the outside that helps me link a lot of what I say to colleagues and other people in the political world. Um, so don't take my word for it. Go and listen to these guys or go and talk to one of these guys over there. And I think people are starting to get the same message from just about every organization in the province. So we've got a long way to go, but uh, we're moving forward at least. I appreciate that, Mike. So I guess that's kind of the next question. You know, we, we complain a lot about, uh, you know, what's happening on the landscape, loss of habitat. Um, you know, there's this whole predator issue, which, you know, is kind of the heart of Act Now in some capacities because of some of the pushback we've been getting. Where do we go from here? You know, we've, that was one of the things we were with together for wildlife. We'd see some positive changes and, um, and, and there probably is some very good positive things coming out of together for wildlife. Um, you know, we've seen a change of government, a change of a party. So, you know, maybe there was some optimism there that we'd see, but we're still having these same issues. So, you know, kind of what, what do we need to do? What are some of the things that we can do to improve things to, to make a difference and actually start reversing? Cause it seems to me, we're still going backwards from what I see, um, on the landscape. So. Yeah, we are, and and, I, and you know, at, at one particular point in time in my life as a hunter and a trapper and a conservationist, um, my focus was on wildlife and wildlife habitat, and and uh, now that I, I've I've studied things to the extent that I have, it's a complete package. We can't look at one part of it without looking at all the other parts of it. And that's why I say when we look at something, we should look at biodiversity management as a whole structure with wildlife management and and uh, forestry and other and water quality and all those things built into the same package. Uh, you know, we hear some of these groups have been talking about um, a moratorium on old growth logging in the province, which I, I think is a good thing. I support that. Uh, you know, it, it's a, you know, it makes me cry when I look at the fact that we're down to 3% old growth in a, in a province this size, that, that is criminal. Uh, and the biodiversity that's, that's been taken away as a result of that. But, and people are saying, it's okay, let, let's log the second growth that's out there, but the second growth hasn't even grown big enough to start providing the habitat necessary for the wildlife that was displaced the wildlife that was that died and starved as a result of logging those clear cuts in the first place. So we need to look at the whole package. We can't say we're all for wildlife management if we're also not looking at the forestry logging side of things, the the water habitat uh, issue, um, you know, the, the glyphosate spraying, all those things is one complete package that we need to emphasize as we're moving forward here. Yeah, well said, Mike. So, you know, in, in that scenario there where we're trying to deal with these issues, where, where do we, you know, what strategy do we have to change? So we have to look at holistically, um, you know, is from what you've seen and, and you know, you've, you, I know you're, uh, you know, looking at it from an elected level, not necessarily, a, um, you know, the bureaucratic level, but uh, is Together for Wildlife going to have that answer? Is it more of a holistic approach to it? Um, you know, or, and I guess that's the question that I have is we have 3% old growth, like you said, 
we don't even have enough second growth to sustain us. You know, where do we go five years from now? You know, that that's not a lot of there's not a lot of trees. Uh, we have an industry to support. So, what does that look five years down the road? And and to change that approach? Yeah, no, that's a very good question. I have to look at, you know, how many uh, members of uh, BC Wildlife Federation are in the forest sector and work in a sawmill and or drive a logging truck or a piece of logging equipment. Um, but at the same time, they're trying to support wildlife populations. And, and how many are in, in your organization that might be involved in the forest sector? And, and so we have to get those people to understand the big picture and to start supporting some of the arguments that we hear from these groups about, you know, trying to stop the, uh, the harvest of old growth forests, trying to uh, recognize all the valleys on the land moving forward. And, and we have to get over the fact that we, we may offend somebody. We may offend some industry person. Uh, we may offend some individual whose business is reliant on the forest sector or on some particular industry that, uh, you know, cuts them a paycheck every month. But, and we have to understand that. But I think somewhere in the middle of that is a balance where we can, and that's all I'm asking for. So let's find that balance where we can still cut a tree down but we can still grow a moose or wild sheep or have salmon in our river or have fur bears. We don't want to go like we did, but like we've seen in, in the Scandinavian part of the world or in the 13 million hectares of pine forest that we have down in the U.S. where nothing grows other than the pine tree. There's hardly any birds flying in there. There's no, there's no uh, fur bear animals in there. There's no ungulates in there. It's 13 million hectares of pine trees. So I don't want to see that in British Columbia. And I think we can find that balance. Um, it's going to take a lot of work because we have a couple of generations, I think, where we we need to take the time to repair a lot of the damage and habitat that we have uh, around the province here. You know, when you look at the plantations that we planted, that, you know, when, when the original forest was cut down, it was around 300 stems per hectare. And we planted about 2,000 stems per hectare. And it's growing in so thick, you can hardly walk through all these mm -hmm. pine trees. They're the conifer monoculture. Uh, and there's nothing growing in there. So um, I've talked with some wildlife biologists that think that we have to go in and we have to thin that out and we have to start replanting some of the deciduous growth that has disappeared. So we're looking at 20, 30, 40, 50 years to repair mm -hmm. the damage that we've done over the last 75 years. And then we'll start seeing some of these wildlife populations come back. And, and you can't, you know, the other aspect of this, you know, is we have colleagues and, and people in, in the political realm that talk about a species at risk act and think that that is going to save everything. But you can't look at a single species in British Columbia without the impact of all the other species that are around it. You know, it's uh, the birds need a certain habitat and they're all part of the food chain and the raptors need to eat. And, you know, it's the same as packing all the meat out of the bush. You know, the argument uh, that uh, the Green Party had is... Uh, they'll support a grizzly hunt as long as you pack the edible portions of the grizzly out. Well, you know, I don't know about you, but I have tried grizzly bear before and it's not one of my favorite. But the other side of the coin is there's not one piece of protein that goes to waste in our forests. Mm -hmm. So whatever dies out there, it is consumed right down to the last morsel of protein within a matter of days or weeks at the most. And so nothing goes to waste. And, uh, you know, it's like being a trapper, you know, you skin, I've skinned thousands of animals 
and uh, I've marketed the fur, but I've taken the carcasses back out in the bush and I've fed the critters and, mm -hmm. you know, I'll throw a Martin carcass out or a handful of them out uh, every week and they're gone by the they're time gone. I get Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Like you, you and I actually, actually went for lunch last week. I think it was before you went down to Victoria and we had a great chat about, uh, the old growth forests and how everybody assumes they're the big eight, 10, 12 foot, 16 foot diameter trees. And up here on your line, which is what an hour North of Prince George, yeah. you, you can show old growth that is only six, eight inches across. Right. And that's, that's the other, uh, thing they're, they're jumping onto, right. Is that emotional side of, the big trees are the only the old growth, and that's that's why it's not paid attention to up here. Oh, and, the, and you're you're right, Steve. And that's the argument that the Council of Forest Industries and even government have been using and say, "Oh, we've got all this old growth that we've protected." Well, a lot of it scrub, but as you said, you know, I can go into my trap line, I can find uh, various bogs full of black spruce mm -hmm. that are at the most six inches in diameter, but they're three to four hundred years old, Absolutely. and and they're only you know, maybe 20 feet tall at the end of the day. So you can count that as old growth. Yeah, I guess you can. But I guess we have to start talking about the mature um, um, uh, trees in some way that people reckon. Most people, when you talk about old growth, think it's these big six foot diameter trees that you were talking about. That's right. That's not the case. That's right. And that's, that's, that's the disconnect that uh, is being pushed, right? So, well, if we protect that, these big trees, that's the only old growth in the province. And that's completely untrue, as you just said. So, yeah, you know, you guys have done a good job over the years uh, with, with some of the programs that you have in, in bringing all these various groups together. But I think more can be done, uh, you know, not only by your group, but by BC Wildlife Federation, by BC Trappers, by the Guide Outfitters Association in recognizing that we all need to stand uh, united on uh, biodiversity management as a mm -hmm. whole. And instead of just trying to represent the trappers, um, you got to get out there and represent those that are advocating for our, the remaining old growth forests or those that are advocating for the salmon to come back and the restoration of our salmon habitat. I was out uh, in, on the Shalako River looking at a lot of the restoration work that has been done there with respect to the erosion and, mm -hmm. and what. The Shalako used to have um, thousands of salmon, Chinook salmon, returning every mm -hmm. year. And the counts have gone down over the last 20 years to where we were only getting single-digit counts yep. the last couple of summers. And I was talking to an individual that's involved in that, and a wildlife biologist, and he was saying that if there's no deciduous growth, along a uh, um, waterway, a drainage, uh, that the salmon and the fish use, you won't have the salmon because without deciduous growth, you don't get the bugs, you don't get the, the leaves falling on the on the ground, you don't get the spiders, those kinds of things that a lot of these fish feed on. So when we go in and we clear cut the shellacco watershed, and I think it's, it's up to about a 90% equivalent clear cut level now, it should only be at 25%. Um, and then we spray and we eliminate all the deciduous growth in there. No wonder we don't have any salmon coming back. And uh, so everything, you know, the parts affect the whole, the whole affects the parts. Not completely. Yeah, ab absolutely, Mike. And I think, you know, that's where we have to take this uh, more of a uh, holistic approach and more, you know, be more supportive, inclusive in our, our communities, right? You know, that's this interesting campaign with Wild Sheep and Act Now. Um, you know, we had a lot of support from different organizations. The BC Wildlife Federation was a big part of this. Um, but there were certain entities that didn't think it was necessary, wasn't warranted, you know, and, you know, and, and it comes back to all these things that we believe in that's important to us about conservation, 
about, you know, an opportunity to hunt, about gun rights, all these different things that, you know, you know, our our group of people kind of, but people like, well, maybe I'm a bow hunter, maybe I'm this or that. And I think, you know, having a more of a unified approach to all this is, is a pretty big, uh, big start, certainly in our hunting community, but then well beyond that, right, about the conservation side of thing. And like you said, the old growth forests and all these different things, because there are people that are opposed to us and they don't, they don't care about these things. In fact, they, they're dia, uh, diametrically opposed to what we're doing. So I think a, a, you know, a big part of that is trying to get everyone on the same page and, and moving forward. So, um, and, and I think this was a bit of a shock to Steve and I with our act now campaign was there were groups that were just like, yeah, we don't believe in what you guys are doing. And they don't think there's any issues with, um, you know, social license or, or any of the things that we, you know, we're concerned about right now. So very interesting. Yeah, it is. You know, we're we're going through a dynamic time in society in general because we have all these individualistic points of view, and and we have, you know, one of the most urbanized provinces in British Columbia or in Canada, right here in BC, where we have. I figured it out the other day for a discussion I had in the house. Um, the Greater Vancouver Metro Vancouver area has fifty-two percent of BC's population on 03 percent of the landmass. Victoria has 8% of British Columbia's uh, population on 0.2% of the landmass. So we've got 60% of BC living on 0.5%, half of 1% of the landmass, yet they're dictating to the rest of us what we need to do and what we shouldn't be doing and don't hunt grizzly bears and, and, and don't do this. The noise should be coming from us. From the you know from the forty percent living outside of that area, and and most likely it's about fourteen percent of us who actually live in in the rural areas. We need to start supporting things like you know BC Wild Sheep Society, uh, things like BC Wildlife Federation. There's a lot of individuals out here that are are just doing their thing every day without really understanding or or without including their friends down in the in the in down in the big city. You know, um, I don't think we have near enough support down in Metro Vancouver because people have their own little paradigm. They go for a hike up Garibaldi Mountain and think that that's the way the world should look. Maybe I'm being too, you know, I, I am certainly not singling everybody out, but when you have about 3 million people living down there, out of 5 million people, that really has an impact on politics. It's got an impact on a lot of outcomes. Well, and that's the interesting part, right? You know, we have this rural-urban divide, and it's just been a you know a, a slow erosion over over years. And people are disconnected from wildlife, right? You know, that when they're in downtown Vancouver, they don't see bears, they don't see um, you know, they're, you're lucky to see uh, an ungulate. You might see you know a, a small city deer or something like that. But uh, there's certainly a disconnect there, and and I think that you know it's it's pretty easy to to beat up on. Um, you know, hunters that are out there and they believe in predator management and, and that trying to maintain that balance on the landscape. Um, and, and it's really an issue. I think that, uh, it's kind of out of sight, out of mind, right? You know, people's experience with wildlife is maybe some birds in the city and then they, they're on the highway and they happen to see, you know, driving through the Rockies and they see a sheep, like that's a big deal. That's, and that's their only experience with wildlife. So it really is, should be no surprise that, um, you know, it's, it's such an emotive issue, right? That people, all they see is these terrible visual pictures of of wildlife being you know harvested or killed or whatever um but uh, they're not realizing that you know species like caribou are at risk and, and there's a very good chance that we're going to lose caribou uh in british columbia because we're not doing enough to manage them 
Yeah. You know, some of these herds are coming back. You know, in my riding, I've got the Kennedy siding herd um, showing some good results, but that has been 100% associated to our, our wolf program up here, uh, aerial wolf program. Uh, they've had great results with that and the herd is starting to expand. But at the same time, part of the habitat for the uh, Kennedy siding is the Parsnip River drainage. And it's been harvested right to death where there's, you know, another couple of years of, of harvesting up there and there won't be any uh, habitat left for the caribou. So then what do we do? We've got to start trucking feed in for them. You know, the other thing is that I find interesting, and, you know, I've been around the, these parts for a long time. And, uh, you know, and flying back, I was thinking about it uh, today in the aircraft. We flew low down over Tabor Mountain and along there and uh, down one leg before we came in for a landing. And back in the 70s and 80s, when I was flying around, where I used to fly around lots, we had a, a turbo beaver in town here that I spent a lot of time in. And we would see moose on the outskirts of Prince George. I would see moose on lakes. Sometimes I would see as many as seven or eight moose on different lakes and ponds uh, throughout the area here. And you don't see any anymore. Uh, you know, I go to my trap line and maybe out of 10 trips, I might see one live moose on the hoof. And, and oh, there, we still got moose around, but there should have been 20. There should have been 30 uh, live moose on the hook. So we get used to it. It doesn't take long for people to kind of get adjusted to the, the dynamics and everything around you thinking, oh yeah, we got moose up here. Uh, we got trees out there. Look at them all. You know, what's Morris talking about? We got thousands of trees out there. And I saw a grouse last week when I was out hunting. And, uh, you know, so people normalize today not realizing that the bar has dropped, you know, 80% from where it used to be. And, and I don't know how we can get that message out to everybody to let everybody know what it was like before and what it can be like if we spend a little bit of time and energy in, in moving in that direction. You did a, a great uh, Google Earth overlay of the area where it showed what the habitat looked like. When did you start that? I think it was like the seventies or something. And you worked your way through to the modern day. And if, if, if that was to get out there a little bit more, I think that would be quite uh, enlightening for some people. Cause you can literally see just the, we'll call it old growth, just disappear. And it's time-lapse. It's absolutely, it's, it's mind blowing for the, for somebody who's lived up here for 15 years, like myself, as, as you said, Back then it was, oh yeah, we'd see two, three, four, five moose in a hunting trip. But now here we are, it's like, okay, well, we might see two or three a season. And that's only in the last 15 years. It's it's disappearing and it's that death by a thousand cuts I keep referencing. And it, they keep taking it away a little bit and a little bit, a little bit. It's It's gone before we know it. And we're going, well, where the hell did it go? Yeah. You know, <laughs> I remember uh, hunting on my trapline back in the... Uh, late 70s, uh, into the 80s. And, you know, my partner and I would go out and, and uh, oftentimes uh, my brother-in-laws would come. So we would have maybe six of us going out for a one-week hunting trip. And all six of us would have moose hanging within three days. And then I would use everybody to go and clean trails and set boxes up and build, rebuild the cubbies and stuff like that. And, and, and that was the norm. We expected that to happen every year. And, and of course, <laughs> now, We've had many trips where we haven't seen a single animal. And of course we come back uh, empty. Going back to the Google Earth uh, time-lapse. So that is an excellent tool. And it's, you know, it commences in 1984 and now they include 2020 in that. And you have to, I, I find it best if you use Google Chrome 
and you have to register to use Google Earth Engine uh, and then find the time-lapse video and, and you can stop and you can zoom in and pan around and, and vary the speed of the time-lapse. But what I've done is, is on my trap line, uh, Council of Forest Industries and some people in the industry are pushing for certainty on the land by saying we want, uh, you know, BC has all these managed forests now. And what they are is all the, the regrowth that's coming up on the second growth. But if I go into my trap line and I freeze the uh, time lapse on 1984, and you just look at the color of the, of the several stages of development out there, you can pretty much figure out when things were logged. We never started clear-cut logging in BC until about 1966, and uh, when we built all the pulp mills. And uh, so you can tell when the clear-cut started. And, it, you know, there's not much in there. Uh, we started replanting in earnest in the 1980s with lodgepole pine because it grew the quickest. And then, of course, the pine beetle came along and wiped out all those trees that we planted in the 70s and 80s and 90s. And we're starting from scratch in a lot of those areas. but scientists and, and uh, civil culturists have found the perfect tree that can grow very quickly, very quickly up here to a tree that's about, you know, 12 inches in diameter, breast height still takes about 80 years. But, you know, that I, I guess that's quick. But it's still not enough to, to provide the habitat uh, th that is necessary on that. So you can pick that out as you're looking through the time-lapse video. And I you know, 1984 and 2020 are side by side, so you can keep switching back and forth to see see what's there. The other part, I, I found a, um, a, a scientific paper on uh, on hydrology in snow uh, areas that had lots of snow, and of course, we got lots of that in BC here. And uh, they were they it was a 2012 study. It's uh, fairly extensive, and what they were saying in the study is that it takes at least 80 years in the interior of British Columbia for a forest canopy to develop enough to slow down the snow melt in the, in the spring. So for 80 years, and particularly the first uh, 30 or 40 years, the snow is melting three to four times faster than it normally would uh, with a forest canopy. And of course that is flushing, you know, everything melts, the streams get over full, they flush all the nutrients down and, and put soil deposits over top of the the uh, salmon spawning areas and, and wash everything away and we get massive flooding, we get landslides, we get a whole bunch of things all attributed to that. And uh, and nobody's come to their senses yet. Now this study's been out for 10 years. Um, where's the pro where's government on this? Well, how come nobody has said, oh my goodness, we're way off on a limb here. We got to start rebuilding our forest canopies uh, to ensure clean air, clean water, wildlife habitat uh, and, and forests for, you know, a lifetime, a hundred lifetimes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting, you know, just being out on the land. Uh, I was just out on a bear trip this, this spring, two weeks ago, and uh, pulled up to this little lake and uh, there's a beautiful area and, and it was all clear cut up to the lake. And then there was, you know, 50 year old growth behind. And you could, at first I was like, oh, that's interesting. They left all these trees, which was nice. And then you get looking at it and really what was happening is 50 years ago, they logged it and they left the setback two, 300, you know, meters back of the, the lake, which, you know, as we know, having that, uh, you know, those trees around the lake and there are setback requirements as we know with logging and they 
so they took all the second growth stuff, left it, and they cleared everything around the lake. So around the lake, there was three or 400 meters, and it was all just completely logged, you know. So a new company had come in and taken everything. So, and, and we see these violations all the time. And the interesting thing is uh, a lot of times I, uh, my hunting partner is very active. He's actually up at Ferry Creek right now. Um, and he's very active in the forestry side of things too, with protesting and you know peacefully. And uh, mm-hmm. he's he's not getting he's yeah. not one of the guys getting arrested, but there he is. Um, and and he's he's reported several violations that he's he's quite knowledgeable about what's legal and what's not. And of course, it's self policed, right? So you know, it's one thing if you have a sustainable forestry system and the forestry companies are recognizing it and and following the rules, but it's self um, you know it's self monitoring. Um, you know, there's no government uh, oversight really is that's required. So there's so many violations, and and it's really really devastating on the habitat. So, you know, it is. We we have absolutely the wrong business model for forestry. It should not be based on volume, and and you know, and we should know that. But unfortunately, that's the system that's been in play now since the mid '60s, well longer than that, right from day one. But Volume-based harvesting is not biodiversity friendly. You just cut the trees down, grow them, cut them down, grow them. And, and uh, I think we have to get more to a um, a uh, ecological model where you go in and you select the trees, much like we did up until the mid-1960s. Any tree that was 12, and 12 inches in diameter and less, you left standing and you logged it once it got big enough. And, uh, you know, I can remember hunting on parts of my trap line um, back in the 70s, where select logging had taken place, there was habitat all over the place. There was moose all over the place. There were fur bears. There were raptors, owls. You know, you go out now and you hardly hear an owl. And, uh, you you know, I never see a goshawk. Goshawks have been red listed for a decade or more. And I don't see them anymore. I used to see them all the time. I I, I was using cushion hold traps. Um, for in the early part of the season because the goshawks were always getting into my sets and snaring them and, and of course it would kill me. So if I use these these cushion holes were rubber jawed traps, you could stick your hand in and walk around all day and it wouldn't hurt, but you wouldn't be able to get the trap off. Mm-hmm. So I was able to go in and get a goshawk and I got a golden eagle one time. You just up and open the trap, they pull their foot out and away they go and, and no harm done. I've even got grouse in them and they've never been hurt. But I don't see that anymore. There's, uh, <clears throat> I haven't seen a golden eagle out on the trap line now for decades. I haven't seen goshawks out there. I haven't seen red-tailed hawks. Those are characters, those things. They would dive bomb you if you walk them yeah. half with their necks and they'd knock your hat off. And uh, <coughs> great. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah. Well, FERPA came in in what, 2004? 2004, yeah. And- it was about 2006 by the time the companies started uh, right. using it, yeah. Right. It, it, there's a there, there's a key in there that it, I believe you pointed out that it says uh, objectives for wildlife, objectives for water, biodiversity at the stand level. And it says the, the key is without unduly reducing the, t- the supply of timber from BC forests. So that that says what the number one priority is, right? It's It's not the wildlife. It's not the water. It's not the landscape. It's don't stop. Uh, messing with what we can cut. And I think that is uh, uh, something that needs to change before we're going to actually see any meaningful change on the landscape, right? Oh, exactly. You know, those, I call them off-ramps and it's under the Forest and Rings Practices and Planning Regulations. 
and uh, I think there's a dozen or so uh, sections that have that. But you know, government was supposed to have they put these objectives out there, and then they they talk about um, what those objectives are, but they still haven't defined what regionally important wildlife are. They still haven't defined some of the areas in there for their objectives. So for the last 20 years, we've just been been cutting without any regard for that because there's no law in place. The regulations don't stipulate what you have to do. There's nothing punitive in there. You know, the, uh, when I first read through the Forest and Range Practices Act, um, I, I was shocked, you know, as being an enforcement all my life, I looked at it, this is a worthless document uh, because of those sections that you referenced there, Steve. Yeah, absolutely. It's it, it's it's sad when you really dial down into what government has taken from priorities. Like we discussed this again, where in the mid '80s, when I was in elementary school, the, the coat of arms, and they'd always discuss that BC was forestry, uh, fishing, and tourism, and none of those three things are are doable right now. We don't have the fish, the forests are gone, and due to COVID, we don't even have the tourism. So what is British Columbia falling back on now. We we haven't planned five years ahead, let alone 50 years ahead. That's a good editorial. You got to write something and put it in the paper on that. that that's a very good point. You know, we're here, here we are, um, you know, in, in 2021. Uh, how long has that coat of arms been in existence? What has happened over that period of time? We are close to the end unless we make that adjustment. Close to the end. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah, no, it's 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 a big job out there, and and it can only happen with everybody's oar in the water. Uh, you know, unless we want to wait until it's so obvious that you know we got nothing left, and then somebody will say, "Geez, why didn't somebody do something about?" Yeah, that? much be. like the Atlantic cod fishery. Mm -hmm. And I, I'd like to stop it before we get to that point, so that we do have a modicum of 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 opportunity left to rebuild wildlife populations uh, and all wildlife populations you know our birds our mm -hmm. our raptors our fish uh, you know the ungulates the fur bears everything that we have out there when you look at you know i go back to martin all the time because that's what i know best is fisher and martin and, and that animal and uh, one of the primary food sources for for martin was a red back bull Mm -hmm. And the redback wool feeds on the the fungi and the and whatnot that grows on the bottom of of uh, blowdowns of trees that have fallen down in the forest. And when you get rid of them and you don't have blowdowns anymore, then you don't have the redback wool. And maybe your mice disappear. Or some species of mice disappear. You know, some will flourish, I guess. And uh, and you know, I've watched whiskey jacks dive bombing down onto the trail in front of me and picking up a mouse or picking up a bull. And flying off into a tree, and it's part of a, a food source. I don't have whiskey jacks uh, hardly at all left on my trap line. They used to come all the time. The grandkids yeah. eat them out of their hand. Yeah, come to think of it, time I've spent up there in, in your area, did, yeah, you pointed out there is no whiskey jacks. Normally, you're you're walking in there, kind of. Oh, there's a person in there following you around, or the magpies. They're not around. There's, it, it's predator sign. It really truly well, is predator you know, sign. The, the the whiskey jacks will will cache their food all summer long for the winter. And they live the winter, They, if they were around, they would. And they cache their food in the branches, the upper branches of the of the forest canopy, a mature forest canopy. 
And that's what they live on all winter long. They stash berries and nuts and mushrooms and meat or whatever they can get in there. And uh, But once that's all cut down, there's nothing left because all of the, the smaller animals from down below might smell it or see it. And mm-hmm. But we don't have them either. So I, I nothing's taken advantage of that anymore. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So, Mike, we talked about... 60% of BC's population in that 0.5% in the lower mainland. Um, you know, we're seeing this flare up now with uh, the old growth forest, Ferry Creek, these protests today, there was a protest at the legislature and we're actually seeing, you know, pol- some policy changes. Uh, there's, you know, the, the NDP stepped back and said they were going to do a bit more. They, they didn't do as much as they could have, but they've, you know, they're taking notice. How do we get that 60%? We talk about it. We all care about it. And I, you know, in all fairness, I am in Victoria, but I'm, I'm one of millions. So how do we change the hearts and minds and get people uh, invested in this and care about it? We're seeing it slowly. And I think Ferry Creek is exciting because actually, you know, it is uh, evoking the masses. They, they are caring. People are, are waking up to sustainability issues with our old growth forests. But how do we um, sort of magnify that with re- regards to forestry, wildlife, uh, sustainability moving forward. Is there, you know, how, how do we, because I think if people cared more, there'd be more of a push. And if we seen more of a push and there was more pressure on government, then things are going to change, right? But if the government's not being held to account, you know, they just keep keep, keep going under the old system, right? Yeah. You know, um, I think, you know, if we could get everybody in British Columbia to spend, um, you know, a couple of weekends looking at, Google Earth Engine time lapse. Uh, I, I think we would be away to the races, uh, but then we'd have to let everybody know how wildlife lives and what wildlife lives in the, in the different typical areas. But I think the other problem that we have right now that we have to overcome is the, the forest industry is fighting back. You know, they're fighting for their life, uh, realistically, but they're working on old information. They're the 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 presentations I see them giving talk about how much money they bring into the British Columbia economy, how many people are employed. They're only logging 0.01% of the total of British Columbia on an annual basis. And people buy that. They laugh that up. What they're not saying is, is um, you know, the period of time they're talking about lumber prices have been the highest in the world that they've ever been, um, that they're logging old growth at a rate like they have never logged before. And, and, you know, making all kinds of product out of that. They're not telling us what the forecast is uh, moving ahead. I, you know, in, in my end, that's maybe what our members could do and your members can do is go into your local forest office and say, can you tell me where the timber supply is coming from for the next five years or the next 10 years? Please show me on a map. And I did that with our regional office with Flinrow and they brought up their database and they, they, took off all the rocks and lakes and stuff like that and said, here we go, this is what we have. And I said, well, um, how old are those trees? Because I've been there and, uh, you know, there's no old trees there. And they said, well, they're they're 80 year old trees. And I said, they're not 80 year old trees. They're 60 year old trees. And, uh, and if you cut them down now, then we won't have any habitat left. Uh, and the only reason there's habitat in those 60 year old trees is because they're right next to the old growth up in the Anzac River and, and that area there. So I think if people start looking, you know, asking the question, go to the, go to your local can for mill and say, where are you guys getting the wood from for the next uh, five years? And how much wood every year are you getting? And, and 
you know, what about the wildlife that's here? Uh, you know, people don't realize it. Um, you know, I had this Facebook post out that got a lot of hits here a while um, uh, tree cavities and the, the mammals, there's 65 species of mammals, of wildlife that live or, or den or nest in these tree cavities. But these tree cavities are all in trees that are 100 years old and older, unless it's aspen. Of course, we don't grow them anymore. We cut them down and spray them. But if, if a forest company is intent on harvesting a tree every 60 years, that means that they don't care about the 65 species that use those trees for denning or nesting purposes, and they're going to be eliminated from the province. And if that's the case, then they all obviously don't care about sheep, they don't care about moose, they don't care about caribou, and uh, so we're going to have nothing left here. So I think, you know, if people are, you know, they, they, they you pull on their heartstrings when they see a bear in Port Coquitlam and, and save the bear and, and the coyotes, even though they attack and kill your pets in Stanley Park, people still want to see the coyotes running around there. Well, there's more coyotes down there than there are in the wild up here. There's more bears um, in a lot of these areas than there is in the wild up here because nobody hunts them down there. There's there and there's no predators that eat them, <laughs> you know, uh, like there is up in the bush here. So people, it, it's a different world uh, in urban British Columbia versus the rest of what we have here. So if we can get everybody looking at Google Earth Engine time lapse, I think we'd be that'd be a step in the right direction. Oh, you're on mute, Kyle. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's costing me a bear, I guess. Sorry, guys. Um, yeah, where I was heading with that is, you know, there are people in the cities that care um, about wildlife. They care about the landscape. Um, and But we just need to be more proactive. We need people to be more involved and um, and, and try and get people caring about wildlife and, and holding you know, holding government account, making sure there's money for it and making sure that we're, you know, the best we can to, to move forward and, and, and start making a priority, I think is, is a big part of it. So, yeah, they, they need to start caring about more than the cute and cuddly wildlife that uh, is on the backs of fundraisers. Right. That, I think that's yeah. a huge one, right there. Why, why is a, a, a grizzly bear or a wolf more majestic and more important to save than a caribou or a deer? Or a moose, and I think that's the big disconnect, right? Is we we know that a lot of the fundraising drives come on the backs of those, so that's what what that's what they're seeing, right? That's what's put into them, and they're almost humanizing them. So it's it, we're we know we've got our shoulder to the grindstone, and we're going to be continuing to try and push the rock uphill. But I I think it's doable. It's just a matter of of, of sticking with it. We we got a good core group in. Uh, our, our society and uh, hunters and anglers and shooters and anybody that recreates in the backcountry that stands with us. And we, we got some, we got some good allies in government too. So it's when we all come together with that same voice. And as you said, Kyle, hopefully together for wildlife does make that difference and brings everybody to that table and says, you know what, enough's enough. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I, I like, you know, look at the screen here. Um, you guys are considerably younger than I am. And and you're full of passion. You had the same passion I had uh, back when I was your age and whatnot. So that, it's good to see that there's some, and, and even around town here, around Prince George, the number of young hunters that I see on 250 and, you know, talking about bear hunting and women hunting and everywhere. I mean, the women who are out hunting. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I think it's phenomenal when I see this taking place. 
And if they have the drive and passion, that's what's going to help change things down the road. But we have to look at the complete picture. Yeah. That's right. No five-year goals. We need a 50-year goal. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think that's something we can take away from First Nations. You know, they, they're looking generationally, right? They're not looking two years down the road. It's a very sure. long-term approach. And I think, you know, we need to start taking that approach in our governance as well and and being, you know, much more long-term on every level, not being, you know, being very holistic, right? Um, you know, like you said, Steve, one of these problems is you get these iconic species, you get a Cecil the lion or you get one, you know, one individual that you know pulls on the heartstrings. Meanwhile, there's a whole species that's being lost, uh, as an example, caribou or, or other species, where it's just not being accounted for because they don't have that that fairy tale story or that that tear jerking story that uh, some of these other species do. So, that's I think so the big true. part of it is is a holistic approach and looking at long term, multi generational, and what we need to do instead of um, you know the next four years or five years down the road. So. That's right. It's it's not about one species. It's about all species and everything that inhabit. It, it it's not about one tree. It's about all trees, right? And that can just keeps going ad nauseum, right? It's 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 about the landscape and everything that inhabits it as a whole. Yeah. No. Exactly. So we got the formula. We just have to make it work. That's the tough part. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, on that. No, Mike, uh, we're going to be respectful of your time. You took time out of your day on Wednesday to come down to the steps of the legislature, you and your colleagues from the BC Liberal Party to support our Act Now campaign. Uh, you took the time this afternoon. You've been away all week. Uh, you just got back to your, uh, your home there. We're going to be respectful of your time. I want to thank you for all you've done to support uh, Wild Sheep BC, Act Now, um, and just wildlife and habitat and uh, conservation in general. Uh, you're certainly somebody I respect and, and a beacon of hope in terms of, you know, our leadership in the in the legislature moving forward. So thank you for your time and all you do, Mike. No, my pleasure. And uh, keep up the good work, guys. And uh, I'm with you all the way.